In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at the Sirah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, inshallah, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register or for more info. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratun Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we talked about uh, the conclusion of the eighth year of Hijrah, where there were many different uh, monumental events that occurred towards the end of the year there with the conquest of Mecca, the Battle of Hunayn, uh, the siege of the city of Ta'if, the Umrah of Ji'irrana. There were all these very monumental events that occurred at that time. And we talked about how after performing the Umrah, the Prophet ﷺ, he returned back to the city of Medina. The books of Sirah mentioned Ibn Ishaq and others, they mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ, he reached back uh, to the city of Medina in the month of Dhul Hijjah. And then the Prophet ﷺ was there in the city of Medina for the remainder of the year. We're going to start off today by talking about the ninth year of Hijrah. Now in the ninth year of Hijrah here, there are a few different things that we're going to talk about. One of the major events of the ninth year of Hijrah is the Battle of Tabuk, the expedition or the campaign of Tabuk. Now this occurred in the month of Rajab. Um, so this occurred um, a little bit later on in the year. Nevertheless, the scholars of the seed of the Prophet ﷺ, they talk about this event first before talking about some of the other things that occurred within the ninth year of Hijrah because there were some other things that we'll talk about in terms of people accepting Islam and delegations coming and arriving. And that was a constant theme that continued on throughout the entirety of the year. So we'll be talking about that later. But first and foremost, we're going to be talking about the expedition to Tabuk. Now, as I mentioned, this occurred in the month of Rajab. And the expedition to Tabuk is one of the major events of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And there is much of the Qur'an that has been revealed in regards to this particular expedition and this entire event and experience. And a lot of, a huge chunk of the Surah to Tawbah um, is in regards to this particular event and this you know, moment from the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So as we have done previously for all the different major events, particularly those that are talked about in detail within the Qur'an, there was Qur'an that was revealed in regards to it, we'll go through the entirety of the event, we'll talk about it in detail, we'll study it, we'll analyze it, we'll discuss it, we'll learn it, and then we'll go back and go through the specific ayat and verses of the Qur'an that were revealed in regards to it, and what you're able to do is then you're able to see the entirety of the event through the lens of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you're able to see what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlights and what He talks about and how He speaks about that particular event. 
So to talk now about Tabuk, what exactly, we talked about when it happened. It's in the ninth year of Hijrah, the ninth year of the Prophet's residence in the city of Medina, and in the month of Rajab, a little bit later <laughs> on in the year. Now, what exactly was the expedition of Tabuk? So to understand this more, what you have to understand is that Mecca, so first and foremost, Medina had been completely secured after the Battle of the Trench. Then the Muslims had gone to the north, and the enemy of the Muslims that resided towards the north at Khaybar, they were basically you know, dealt with, and now they had also come into the fold of Islam. And they, or rather that territory had come under Muslim control, and they had been able to broker some peace with that particular region. Now the Muslims proceeded on to the south, to the city of Mecca, and Mecca came in, officially came into the fold of Islam. So alhamdulillah, that was also secure. Along with that at that time, the tribes of Hawazin that resided outside of Mecca, between Mecca and Ta'if, they had also been dealt with. And the Muslims had even gone and laid siege to the city of Ta'if. Now Ta'if had not accepted Islam, had not come into Islam yet. But as I mentioned previously, they would be coming towards the end of the ninth year. In this same year, they would come and they would then at that point in time enter into the fold of Islam. So for, for to quite an extent... The region in the, uh, the area of the Arabian Peninsula, particularly the more inner region that's known as Hejaz, that had completely come under the fold of Islam, and now this area was safe and secure. The next great enemy and threat to the Muslim community that existed at that time was further to the north, and that was the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire had at that time, they... Uh, they enjoyed control of many of the Arab regions as well, so that, such as the Levant, Bilad al-Sham, and even in, up into the northern areas of the Arabian Peninsula, there were territories of the Roman Empire over there. And so there was quite a bit of a threat and a constant threat that was coming from the north towards the Muslims. So at this particular time, the Prophet wasallam, he gathered the Sahaba together, he consulted with them about this constant threat that they were facing from the north, from the Roman Empire. And at that particular time, the Prophet wasallam, as it's mentioned in all the books of Sirah, like Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, and others, and also in the books of Hadith, like the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, and even the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, the Prophet wasallam, at that time consulted the believers, consulted the Sahaba, and basically told them to start preparing to march out in the direction of Tabuk, which was far to the north, in order to go there and make a show of strength to the Roman Empire, that they will not be intimidated, that they will stand up, that they will defend themselves, they will fight if it comes to that. If there is a battle, then the battle obviously will occur. But even if there is no fighting, at the very least what it does is it makes a very significant show of strength. So the Prophet ﷺ told the Sahaba to start preparing. And... Specifically, there's a couple of other details about the Battle of Tabuk that need to be understood about the nature of this particular incident. This was during the end of the summertime. So the summer season as we know it. So think about it kind of like, you know, maybe in the month of August. It was around that particular time. Now what does that mean? That means two things specifically. Number one, what that means is that it was very, very extremely hot. 
And we live in quite a, you know, here in Dallas, Texas, it gets quite hot during the summertime. So we're familiar with the fact that the month of August can be very, very brutal. The heat can be very intense. So that's the first factor. So it was very hot. Now, when you're talking about a journey that would take them 20 days of continuous marching to reach the place of Tabuk, to do that at the absolute peak of the heat towards the conclusion of the summer season, that was something that was very daunting as a task, number one. The second thing that that means that it was during the month of August is that this was also the time that they would harvest the crop. So specifically, the Medinan industry was largely based on their production of dates, tamar. So they produced dates, and that was the, a large part of the economy and the industry for the Medinan community, which is a Muslim community. And so this was the time of the harvest, where they would basically have to pick the dates and gather the dates and you know, start cleaning up the dates and prepare them for selling. And basically that's what their entire economy would be based off of, and that's what they would live off of for the coming year. And so it was at this particular time. So to march out at this time, not only are they marching out maybe into the most brutal heat of the season, but they are also leaving behind a lot of their crops and a lot of the dates that are ripe and that are ready to be picked and plucked. And what that means is this could cause a significant setback financially and economically for the Muslim community. So these were the factors that they were facing. Now, at this particular time, there's another third curiosity or interesting thing about this particular event that is different from the previous expeditions and campaigns of the Prophet ﷺ. And that particular thing that is different here is that it was from the practice, the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ, which was a war strategy that was practiced at that time. And the Prophet ﷺ definitely utilized this to its full extent. The Prophet ﷺ says in an authentic narration, Al-Harbu Khuda'a. That war is strategy, war is deception, more literally translated. But what it really means is that war is strategy. It's a game. It's a strategy. So the Prophet ﷺ, what his practice was, that whenever they marched out for any particular expedition, the Prophet ﷺ, aside from the senior council whom the Prophet ﷺ would consult, Aside from them, the Prophet ﷺ would not disclose publicly where they were heading to, where they were going. Whether it was Khaybar, whether it was Badr, whether it was Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ would not disclose where they were going. Second thing, the Prophet ﷺ, whenever they would head out, if they were going to, the, to Khaybar, which was to the north, the Prophet ﷺ would then first make the army march out of Medina towards the south. And they would go towards the south a bit, or they'd go to the east for a bit, and then they would turn and then start marching towards the north. And similarly, whether they were going to the south, they'd do the same thing towards the north or to the west, or etc. And this was the habit of the Prophet ﷺ, and this was part of the strategy of war. This particular expedition, the third thing that is unique about it, is that the Prophet ﷺ publicly announced exactly where they were going. That they were going to Tabuk, and they were going there to make a show of strength, to face off against the Roman Empire. That was, very, that was made very publicly known. That was disclosed by the Prophet ﷺ. 
And along with that, when they marched out from Medina, they marched out directly in the direction of Tabuk. There was no changing of direction. There was no, um, you know, any type of strategy in that regard that was employed. They announced, we're going to Tabuk, we're preparing for Tabuk, and they marched out in the direction of the city of Tabuk, or the area of Tabuk. Thank you. So, at this particular time, the Prophet and Muslims, they start preparing. And I'm going to talk about two things here today, in terms of the preparation. Number one, the first thing I'd like to talk about is, or rather, excuse me, I'll talk about three things today, in terms of the preparation. Number one, the first thing I'd like to talk about is, some of the counter, some of the counter messaging, the counter campaigning, that was occurring within Medina by the munafiqun, by the hypocrites. And we've talked about this previously, just to create a little bit of clarity and maybe a bit of a refresher in regards to this particular subject of the munafiqun and the hypocrites. Um, the Prophet wasallam, the Qur'an talks about you know, إِنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ يُخَادِعُونَ اللَّهَ وَهُوَ خَادِعُهُمْ وَإِذَا قَامُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ قَامُوا كُسَالَى يُرَاءُونَ النَّاسَ وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهَ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Alright, Allah says that the hypocrites, they think that they're deceiving God, but in reality it is God who is deceiving them. It is God letting them live in their delusions. When they stand to pray, they stand very lazy in their prayer, and even when they do stand lazily, they are basically just trying to show off to people. They're just trying to keep up appearances. It has nothing to do with communicating with Allah, talking to Allah, worshiping Allah. They're just keeping up appearances, and they don't remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except for very little within their prayer. The Qur'an talking about the hypocrites. The Qur'an talks about the hypocrites, وَالْمُنَافِقُونَ وَالْمُنَافِقَاتُ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ بَعْضُ يَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمُنْكَرِ وَيَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمَعْرُوفِ وَيَقْبِدُونَ أَيْدِيَهُمْ That Allah says that the hypocrites, they are allies of one another, and they tell people to do bad things, and they try to stop people from doing good things. And they are very stingy, they don't spend from what Allah has provided for them, what Allah has given them. And then, similarly in the Qur'an, Allah talks about their fate. Alright, Allah says, نَسُوا اللَّهَ فَنَسِيَهُمْ إِنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ هُمُ الْكَافِرُونَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they forgot God, so God forgot them. Meaning Allah will neglect them. That these, they will be coupled together. وَعَدَ اللَّهُ الْمُنَافِقِينَ وَالْمُنَافِقَاتِ وَالْكُفَّارِ That God will couple them, will group them together with the disbelievers. Because as far as Allah is concerned, Allah sees what's in the hearts. وَاللَّهُ عَلِمٌ بِذَاتِ السُّدُورِ يَعْلَمُ خَائِنَةَ Allah says in the Qur'an that they'll be in the lowest, most despicable pits of hell. May Allah protect us all. Along with that, the Prophet ﷺ in a number of different narrations, a hadith, traditions, he speaks about what a lot of times scholars refer to as nifaq amali, which also means hypocritical character and behavior and actions. Okay, where the Prophet ﷺ says, إِذَا حَدَثَ كَذِبًا that when they speak, they lie. When they make promises, they break those promises. When they are trusted, they will always betray the trust. So the Prophet ﷺ, another narration, the Prophet ﷺ adds a fourth element, that whenever they, فجرة, that 
that whenever they disagree with someone, they immediately become very vile in their disagreement. They can't respectfully disagree with anybody. All right? So these are some of the character of the hypocrites. And so this is hypocritical character or behavior conduct. Now, when we talk about hypocrites at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, this is a little bit of a different dynamic. Because Allah is the only one who can see within the hearts of people. We cannot. I cannot say somebody is a hypocrite or not. I can't see within their hearts. But Allah can. And the Prophet ﷺ receives divine revelation. So hypocrites at the time of the Prophet ﷺ were not just people with bad character or people who were, you know, um, had bad intentions or had their own, you know, personal agendas within the community. But these were more specifically kind of an organized entity that existed within the Muslim community at that time that was working constantly against the Qur'anic and prophetic agenda. They were constantly working against the progress and the furthering of the deen of Islam. So it's a very organized entity. So it's a very problematic thing. That's what we, that's what we mean when we're talking about it. That's what we're referring to. So the, as I said, the first thing I wanted to talk about here today in terms of preparing for the departure uh, to Tabuk on the expedition of Tabuk, the first thing is the hypocrites and how they were going about things and what they were basically doing at that time in terms of working against the Prophet wasallam and trying to dissuade people from going and trying to sow the seeds of discord and doubt and confusion within the Muslim community, within the believers that were ready to do whatever was asked of them. So I wanted to talk about a few different things. The first thing that's mentioned here as a sample of what the hypocrites were up to because the Quran speaks about this. The very first thing that is mentioned is that a man who was from Banu Salima. A man who was from Banu Salima, his name is relayed as Jad ibn Qais. He said, Ya Rasulullah, awata'dhunu li wa la taftinni. Fawallahi laqad arafa qawmi annahu ma rajulun bi ashaddi ajaban bin nisa'i minni wa inni akhsha in ra'aytu nisa'a bani rasfar alla asbir. This is a bit crude, what he says here. So please bear with me and I'll try to present it as appropriately as I can. And of course it goes without saying, but I still want to offer this disclaimer. There's an expression in Persian, نَقْلِ كُفْرْ كُفْرْ that basically means that when you quote somebody else, that does not necessarily mean that you agree with what you're saying. You're quoting someone else. Quote, end quote. Alright? What this man came, said to the Prophet ﷺ was, O Messenger of Allah. He says, can you grant me permission to stay back and not come with you, not accompany you, not join you, even though I'm able-bodied, I'm capable, I'm financially secure. But I would like to be exempted, to like to be excused from this journey, from this trip. And, he's, and he said, and he actually says something a bit disrespectful, a bit abrupt, even before he says something crude. He says, وَلَا تَفْتِنِّي Do not test my faith. To the Prophet ﷺ. That's very odd. And at the very least disrespectful. Um, if not blasphemous. It's the Prophet ﷺ. So he says that, um, you know, give me permission, exempt me from having to come, and don't test me. Don't put me in a difficult position. Don't put me in a position where it would compromise my faith. 
He says, I swear to God, my people know that there is not a single person amongst our tribe who is more, and again, pardon, that who is more infatuated with women than I am. And he says that I am afraid that if I travel up to the north and I see the women folk there who are of a different, you know, uh, of a different race, a different ethnicity, that will seem exotic to me. It'll be a novelty, it'll be exotic for me. That I'm afraid that I will not be able to control myself and that I will fall into some type of sin or ill behavior. Very perverse, let alone strange and disrespectful. When he says this, it is so distasteful what he's saying. The Prophet does not even dignify him with a response. The Prophet literally, physically turned away from him. I can't even listen to what you're saying. I can't even look at you. I don't even know what to say to you. The Prophet just looked away from him. And then after looking away from him, the Prophet just waved him off. Go, go, go. You're exempted. And at that particular time, the verse, and as I talked about, we'll go through all the verses, but in Surah Tawbah, ayah number 49, just to kind of talk, talk about this incident, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse of the Qur'an, وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَقُولُ وَلَا From amongst them, there is the type of person who says, who says, excuse me, exempt me, and do not test me. Do not put me in that difficult situation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls them out. He says, now all of a sudden they fall into fitna. Now all of a sudden their faith is tested. Subhanallah. Allah says that the, the fire of hell will completely engulf, will completely devour the disbelievers. And by leaving that there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is basically saying this person and what, he, what Allah knows is in his heart and how he speaks to the Prophet and what he says, this is disbelief in the eyes of Allah. Very severe warning. So that's one example of the munafiqoon trying to undermine the efforts of the Prophet Another example of the munafiqoon similarly undermining this, the efforts of the Prophet here is very well known that a group of the munafiqoon started going and campaigning, petitioning people in the Muslim community who were getting ready to go on the expedition of Tabuk. And they said, لا تنفروا في الحر Why would you march out into this unbearable heat? It is suicide. Why would you march out into this unbearable heat? It is suicide. And at that time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala similarly revealed to the Prophet sallallahu and again it's an ayah from Surah At-Tawbah which we'll go through in its entirety inshallah. But again to quote the ayah here, ayahs 81 and 82, Allah says, وَقَالُوا لَا تَنْفِرُوا فِي الْحَرِّ They say don't march out into the heat, don't go kill yourself, don't commit suicide, don't be reckless and march out into the heat. قُلْ O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah says, Ya Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, 
قُلْ You say in response to them, نَارُ جَهَنَّمَ أَشَدُ حَرًّا The fire of hell is a lot more severe than any heat that's out there. لَوْ كَانُوا يَفْقَهُونَ If only these people had the ability to comprehend and understand. فَلْيَضْحَكُوا قَلِيلًا وَلْيَبَكُوا كَثِيرًا They'd laugh a lot less than they do now, and they'd cry a lot more than they do now. جَزَاءً بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْسِبُونَ As a consequence of what these people are doing. If they only knew what they're doing, the hell that they are preparing for themselves. Again, may Allah protect us all. So these are a couple of examples of the efforts that were being made against the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims um, in preparing to leave for the expedition of Tabuk. The second thing I wanted to talk about today were some of the efforts that were being made, not just efforts. There were of course the people who were getting ready and we'll be talking about some of this, the legendary epic stories about Abu Bakr about Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu where he talks about how, you know, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu was, was, was somebody we all looked up to, he says. Somebody whom uh, we all admired. We all looked up to him. He excelled in good far beyond everyone else. Right, he he set the bar so high, and we always looked up to him, and and we always aspired to be more like him in following the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So he says that it was at that particular time, Abu Bakr radiallahu taala anhu, historically speaking, personally, he had been a very wealthy person for most of his life, and he had eventually spent all of his wealth in the service of the Deen and in you know serving and standing by the side of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So. Umar radiallahu ta'ala says that this was the first time in my life where I knew for a fact that I was more financially secure than Abu Bakr was. I, had, I was in a better financial situation than Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was. And so it was at this particular time that I was very confident that I would be able to surpass Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala in terms of what I would contribute, what I would donate, what I would give. Because the Prophet not only said every able-bodied male must come, as we'll be talking about, but at the same time, because this was an injunction in the Qur'an, in خِفَافًا وَثِقَالًا Everyone's got to go. But the Prophet ﷺ also called on everyone, the Qur'an also called on everyone to contribute whatever they could contribute. And so Umar anhu said, I was very confident that I'd be able to contribute more than Abu Bakr anhu. So he says, I went home and I basically, you know, took stock, took account of what I had, and I took about half of what I had, and I decided I was going to donate half of everything I owned. And that was going to be quite a bit, a substantial amount. He says, when I came to give it to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ asked me, what have you brought? And I said, half of everything I own. And he said, mashallah, very good, etc. He said, a little while later, while I was there, Abu Bakr anhu came along with also a bunch of supplies. His donation, his contribution. And he said, visibly, it was less than what I had brought. So immediately, I felt, you know, grateful to Allah that I was able to for once, you know, outdo the As-Siddiq, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And he said, but then the Prophet ﷺ asked him, what have you left? And it was at that moment I realized I'll never outdo this person. Because he said, I have left home Allah and His Messenger Wasallam." Meaning he brought pretty much everything he had. And so these were the contribution sacrifices being made at this time. <coughs> Similarly, Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu, 
who is one of, again, the most remarkable companions of the Prophet ﷺ. He has a very, very powerful story at this particular moment, at this time, that when the Prophet ﷺ needed to start collecting funds, contributions, because there were a lot of people who wanted to come, who the Prophet ﷺ needed to come, but there was not enough supplies and transportation and food and rations and rides for everybody. So they needed contributions. So the Prophet ﷺ, he stood up and he basically addressed the Sahaba and he asked them that... Who will contribute? I need people to contribute. Khataba Nabi Usra. The Prophet addressed the Sahaba and he said, I need people to contribute. And the narration mentions that Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he stood up and he said that I will contribute enough, I will contribute a hundred camels fully loaded with all the supplies. A hundred camels fully loaded with all the supplies. And a camel would basically be enough for about three people. They used to take turns riding it. So a camel plus the supplies for like three people. And he said, a hundred of these camels. So enough supplies for three hundred people, I will supply. And the Prophet ﷺ, you know, made dua for him and thanked him. Then the Prophet ﷺ again asked, I still need more people to contribute. And Uthman radiallahu anhu stood up and he said, I'll give a hundred more camels. With again, three hundred people's worth of supplies. And then, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam again asked, I still need more people to contribute. And Uthman radiallahu anhu stood up again and he said, I'll give a hundred more camels and three hundred people more of supplies. And the narration says, the sahabi who narrates this, he says, I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi he just kind of he just moved his hand like almost kalmutajib, like just you know when you're shocked or surprised by something, and you just kind of put your hands up, being like, just I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say. He said, I saw the Prophet just kind of like shaking his hands, shaking his head, just in shock, in dismay, like at how generous this person is. And the Prophet says, Ma ala Uthman ma amila ba'da It does not matter what Uthman does from this day forward. Uthman has proven himself to Allah and his messenger In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ, he said, مَا ضَرَّ Uthman بَعْدَهَا That nothing can ever harm Uthman ever again. Nothing can ever be held against Uthman ever again. In another narration, the Prophet Uthman anhu, he after contributing all of this, he came to the Prophet ﷺ on top of all of this. On top of all of this, Imam Ahmed mentions in his Musnad, on top of all of this, Uthman radiallahu came separately back to the Prophet later on, and he, in his shirt, he was holding his shirt up, you know, kind of like the, the thobe that hangs out in front of you, he was kind of holding it up like a scoop, like he had something in it, carrying something in it, and it was full of bi-alfi dinar, a thousand gold coins. I don't even know what that looks like. A thousand gold coins. He was carrying it, and he came to the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ was sitting, and he asked the Prophet ﷺ that, can you spread out your shawl? 
And the Prophet spread out his shawl in his lap, and Uthman radiallahu anhu slowly poured all the thousand gold coins into the lap of the Prophet And the Prophet was just sitting there, stunned, and he took some in his hands, and he just kind of like, you know, you pick it up and you drop it. He picked them up and he dropped it. And the Prophet said, Allahumardi an Uthman, fa inni anhu radin. He said, Oh Allah, you be pleased with Uthman because I am pleased with Uthman. And so this is the testament to Uthman radiallahu anhu. And this is something that is for a more detailed conversation another day. But very quickly, very succinctly, if you look forward in Islamic history, Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu of course would be the third khalifa of the Muslims. The third caliph, the third leader of the Muslims after the departure of the Prophet Abu Bakr, Umar, then Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu majma'in. Very tragically, the way that Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu passed was that there were these rebels that raided the city of Medina. They claimed to be Muslim. And they came into the city of Medina. They raided the city of Medina. And they eventually attacked the home of Uthman radiallahu anhu. Uthman radiallahu anhu was a very simple person, a very humble, very modest, humble person. Like he was very quiet, and very modest, and very humble, very low-key, low-profile. And so some people kind of fearing that these people might try to do something crazy, some of the sahaba like Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu has said, would you like some people to kind of guard your home? And he said, no, I don't have guards. I'm a servant of Allah. I'm a khadim, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a worker of the Prophet have guards outside my house. And what these very, very terrible people, what they did was, they broke into the house of Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and they murdered him, they assassinated him. Shaheed. They killed him. And this is how Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu died. When they first raided the city of Medina, they basically were chanting and screaming outside the masjid, and as Uthman radiallahu would come and go to the masjid, they would throw things at Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and, and they were slandering him, they were accusing him, falsely, completely, 100%, of being unethical, being dishonest, doing bad, you know, not being fair, not being just, lying, cheating, etc., etc. All these preposterous claims. And Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu was very quiet, he wouldn't respond to them, he wouldn't engage them. But eventually one time when they just kept on attacking his character, Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, one time he did say something. And what he said was, it's narrated in the books of uh, history and hadith, that Imam al-Nasai mentions this, that Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu said to Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas, and Ali bin Abi Talib, Zubayr ibn al-Awam, Talhat ibn Ubaidullah, he said to these sahaba, these senior companions who were from the early days, from the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they knew him. Right? They had bled together, they had cried together, they had prayed together. They had sat in front of the Prophet ﷺ together. He said to these people, أَنْشُدُكُمْ billahi." 
I make God your witness. I ask you with Allah as your witness. هَلْ تَعْلَمُونَ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمَ قَالَ مَنْ جَهَزَ جَيْشَ الْعُسْرَةِ غَفَرَ اللَّهُ لَهُ Did you not hear the Prophet ﷺ say that whosoever supplied the army at the time of Tabuk, that God has forgiven that person? And they all said, yes, of course, Allahumma na'am. He said, فَجَهَزْتُهُمْ حَتَّى مَا يَفْقِدُونَ خِطَامًا وَلَا عِقَالًا he said, I supplied the army at the time of Tabuk. So much so that I not only brought the camels, but I brought the reins, and I brought the saddles, and I brought the supplies, and I brought the food, and I brought everything. Did I not do that? Didn't the Prophet ﷺ make dua for me? And they said, Allahumma na'am. They said, of course, Allah is our witness, yes. And he said, then I don't understand what these people accuse me of. So this is... I mentioned this because he invokes that same moment from the time of Tabuk where he had contributed. And the third thing and the last thing I wanted to mention here in terms of the preparation for the battle of Tabuk, and this is something very, very powerful. This is the power of sincerity. Sincerity. And a lot of times, you know, we talk about ikhlas, sincerity, and we don't really know what it means, what it looks like. So this gives a very practical demonstration and definition to sincerity and that's why I wanted to share this here. There were some people the Quran talks about them and I'll mention the ayah of the Quran here but first to give you the layout there were some people and there are specific incidents that are mentioned there's one incident that mentions just a group of people another incident mentions seven people from the Ansar. Another narration also mentions Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu ta'ala who says it was the Ash'ariyun which were the people of the Ash'ari tribe who had accepted Islam and come as refugees from Yemen. They had come as refugees and joined the Muslim community as Muslims. And so they were very poor people. They didn't have a lot. Many of them were from the Ashabu Sufa, where they lived in the masjid and they ate whatever was brought to them. So a group of the Ash'ariyun who had accepted Islam not too long ago, they came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said, we want to participate, we want to go with you. We want to participate. We weren't, we weren't Muslim. We didn't witness the battle of Badr, the battle of Uhud, the battle of the trench. We would like to participate. We would like to come. But they didn't have rides. They didn't have transportation. They didn't have food. They didn't have supplies. So they came to the Prophet ﷺ. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah. They said that, you know, you, we have been called upon and you are looking for people to come, we would like to come with you. Ihmilna. Provide the supplies and transportation for us so that we may accompany you. And the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari specifically mentions that they, some of them were shy, so they sent me. You go talk to the Prophet ﷺ. you're a little bit closer with him, so you ask him. So, he says, I went to the Prophet ﷺ and I said, please, we need supplies. These people would like to come. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Wallahi la ahmilukum ala shay'in. La ajidu ma ahmilukum alayhi. As the Quran quotes the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ said, I'm sorry, but I don't have supplies. I don't have anything. We're already short on supplies. I don't have any, enough supplies to take you along with us. I'm sorry. And the narration mentions that they, he turned back from there and he went to his friends and he told them that, I'm sorry, the Prophet said he doesn't have any supplies for us. And they broke out into tears, crying. They broke out into tears, crying. Saying that, 
you know, we want to go, but we don't have enough to go. And we feel inadequate, we feel weak, we feel incapable. We wish we could have gone. Sincerity. And they were sitting there, kind of just, you know, lamenting the fact that they didn't have enough to go. And Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he comes out to them a little while later, and he calls them. He said, where are those folks? So they answer, we're over here. And when they come in, the Prophet ﷺ tells them, here are camels and supplies. Somebody came to the Prophet ﷺ and said that, Ya Rasulullah, I know that we're going for Tabuk, and I know that we're short on supplies. I took a stock of everything I have, and I had this much extra stuff, and I wanted to contribute it. And the Prophet told Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, go out there and get them. And Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu went and got them. And the Prophet congratulated them and said, look, Allah has made means for you. And they were able to go and accompany the Prophet on this remarkable journey. In another narration, it also mentions that there were two companions, two sahaba, who they wanted to go. And there was not enough for them to be able to go. The Prophet said, I'm sorry, I don't have any supplies. So these two companions, these two sahaba, they went home, and that night, they sat there and they made dua and they cried. And one of their friends saw them sitting there making dua and crying, and he said, "My yubki kuma, why do you cry?" And he said, "Jitna Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam liyahmilana, And so then they said that, you know, we went to the Prophet so he could maybe provide some ride and some supplies for us, and he said he doesn't have anything extra, so we just we don't have enough for ourselves, and we feel inadequate, we feel weak, we feel like we failed. We wanted to go with the Prophet ﷺ. We want to accompany him. So that's a, that friend of theirs, when he hears this, he basically goes home. He finds one, he gets one extra transportation that he has. He gathers together all the food that he can, so that's enough rations and supplies for the two of them. He goes back and he gives it to them and he says, here you go. Go with the Prophet ﷺ. Another narration mentions that a sahabi who similarly is looking for some sponsorship, He's looking for a sponsorship to be able to go with the Prophet And the Prophet has been turning people away. I'm sorry, I don't have anything else. So he goes home and he cries and he makes dua. And his dua is related. He says, Allahumma innaka amarta bil jihadi wa raghabta fihi thumma lam taj'al indi ma ataqawa bihi wa lam taj'al fi yadi rasulika ma yahmiluni alayhi wa inni atasaddaqu ala kulli muslimin bi kulli mazlamatin asabani fiha fi malin aw jasadin aw irdin he makes dua. He says, Oh Allah, you commanded us to go out with the Prophet ﷺ. You encouraged us in the Qur'an to tell and told us to go out. But then you did not give me enough supplies so that I can go. And you didn't give enough to the Prophet ﷺ so that I could receive a sponsorship. But oh Allah, if I had enough, I would have not only gone myself, but I would have sponsored every single Muslim that I could have sponsored. And he makes his dua at night, crying in front of Allah. In the morning when he comes to pray with the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ says, أَيْنَ الْمُتَصَدِّقْ هَذِهِ اللَّيْلَةِ Where is the very charitable, generous soul from the previous night? 
فَلَمْ يَقُمْ أَحَدٌ Nobody responded. It's kind of a vague question. Then the Prophet says, أَيْنَ الْمُتَصَدِّقْ فَلْيَقُمْ Where is that charitable, generous soul who is willing to donate even though he doesn't have? Then this Sahabi got up and went to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, Ya Rasulullah, you're the Messenger of Allah, that's why I'm gonna share this with you. I made this dua last night. And I know that you must be asking for a reason. The Prophet ﷺ said, Abishir, congratulations. بِيَدِهِ I swear by the one who holds my life in his hands. I swear by Allah. لَقَدْ كُتِبَتْ فِي الزَّكَاةِ الْمُتَقَبِّلَةِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wrote that deed down in your book of deeds. You, you, in your book of deeds, the reward of sponsoring every single person that is coming on this expedition, you, as, it's as if you had sponsored all of them, that reward was written down in your book of deeds. And there were 30,000 people that went in the Battle of Tabuk. 30,000. You got the reward of sponsoring 30,000 people on an expedition with the Prophet ﷺ. That is sincerity. So when you hear people talk about ikhlas is the main thing, sincerity is the secret sauce, you hear people say these things. This is what it means. This is sincerity. Sincerity will make ways, will make, you know, will, will, will create means where no means were available. Miraculously. And even if the means are not eventually provided miraculously, the reward is still achieved. The reward is still achieved. And that's the power of sincerity. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about these people that they came to you. That when you when these people that came to you to ask you to take you with them, to take them with you. When these people came to you asking you to sponsor them so that they can come with you. قُلْتَ You said to them, لَا أَجِدُ مَا أَحْمِلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ You answered honestly, I don't have enough to take you with me. تَوَلَّوْ They turned away from there. وَأَعْيُنُهُمْ تَفِيدُ مِنَ الدَّمْعِ حَزَنًا And they, their, their tears were streaming down their face out of true regret and sadness. أَلَّا يَجِدُ مَا يُنْفِقُونَ That they don't have enough to spend. And this is that power of sincerity. So we see a stark contrast here in the preparation for the Battle of Tabuk. I told you three unique things about Tabuk. Number one, it was the brutal, the most hottest time of the year. Number two, it was the harvest was being left on the trees. And number three, it was very clearly known what they were going to potentially face. The most daunting odds that they had ever faced. The most overwhelming odds they had ever faced. And then you see a stark contrast here. You see the hypocrites, people coming to the Prophet saying crude and disrespectful things, la taftinni, etc., etc. Don't test my faith, don't put me in that situation. You have people coming and campaigning, petitioning against the Prophet la tanfiru fil har, don't go kill yourself in the heat. But on the other hand, you see people like Uthman radiallahu who give and give and give. And then you see people who don't have anything, let alone to give, they don't even have enough to go. But they still come and they beg and they plead and they, you know, they, they, they sit there. And they make dua and they cry. Saying, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. And this is a powerful lesson in sincerity.
that this deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we have, the task that we have in front of us, living deen in our own lives, building a Muslim community, raising our families, spreading deen to the entirety of the world, establishing justice on the face of this earth, feeding the poor, putting a roof over the homeless, helping people through their tragedies and problems and you know, difficulties, making a better world. This task that we have in front of us, this is a part of our Islam. And no matter how difficult it gets, this is our task. We can't make excuses. We can't be those types of people who sit there and make excuses and say disrespectful things. We got to face the task. We got to be up to the task. And then people in the face of this challenge will be divided into these same two types of parties. Or three types of parties. There'll be those who will make excuses. We read about them. God reprimanded them in the Qur'an. May Allah protect us all. There will be those people who will be up to the task and who will go above and beyond what is required of them. And then there will be those people who can't do much, but they have sincerity. They are all heart. They're completely invested. And they will sit there, do as much as they can, and cry and ask Allah that, Oh Allah, I wish I could do more. And sometimes Allah will give them the ability to do things nobody could have imagined. But even when they're not able to do a whole lot, Allah will reward them according to the sincerity of their intentions and to the sincerity of their du'as. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst them. So with that, with that inshallah we conclude. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that's been said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. نستغفرك ونتوب إليك